and as Gary quietly pours another glass of wine. And now, coming to you for the Gershwin Room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Stratton, Gary K. Wolfhorn, the Coot Street Podcast. And we're back after a long hiatus, which was partly planned, partly not planned, partly partly incompetent, partly uh, a failure on my part to get a podcast recorded that I should have gotten recorded. Let's face it, Gary, you get what you pay for. Uh, well, that's true, and I'm drinking cheap Malbec since people were probably wondering what it is. <laughs> well, you know, look, we both, I think, would love to be producing a podcast every single week or something like that so that people could actually rely upon it. But life does get in the way, doesn't it? Well, life gets in the way, but competence gets in the way, too. I recorded – I'm not going to give the details of it because people will feel that it's one of the legendary lost podcasts, but it is – I did record a very nice podcast with two very articulate and bright and smart guests when I was at the Campbell Conference in Lawrence, Kansas. And the most bizarre thing happened to that recording, as you've heard. It sounded like um, it could have been something out of a Ring movie. <laughs> and to this day, I can't figure out – the complete recording is there an eldritch, baritone, slow-motion, cranky – echoey talk so i apologize to everybody it's my personal responsibility that we did not have a podcast a couple of weeks ago but i can tell you about the campbell conference which was a a lot of fun tell me about the campbell conference gary i understand it was Uh, a lot of fun um it was there 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 are conferences i'm thinking conferences have personalities and by which i don't mean the fanish terms like relaxicon which means we can't afford any guests or Sircon, which means like we don't have a sense of humor, or all the various things. This was a small convention in Lawrence, Kansas. It gives out the Sturgeon Award and the Campbell Award. Uh, the Sturgeon Award uh, winner, Kat Valente, was there. I got to see Sheila Finch, who's a delightful person I've not seen. For, and, of course, Kedge Johnson and, and, and Chris McKitterick and Bradley Denton and, and James Gunn, who is kind of the – uh, patriarch of this whole thing, who is now, I think, 94. Um, so it reminded me, if anything, of the uh, the Locus Awards uh, weekend, where you don't have a lot of people, you don't have a lot of celebrity authors, uh, but you get to spend a lot of quality time with the ones that you do spend time with. And, and that's what this felt like. There were a, a lot of younger writers there. There had been a writing workshop as their is at the Locus Awards, so you have a lot of young, ambitious writers. There were eight or nine Chinese visitors uh, who gave us some wonderful uh, translations of their fiction, some of which had been published in places like Clark's World. Um, so, so that part was interesting. The other part, uh, there, there was a, a, another tribute to, to Jim Gunn. I interviewed him in an interview, which I believe in some form will be in an upcoming um, issue of Locus. And uh, I, I spent a lot of time being uh, driven around by Michael Page, who's a, uh, a, a scholar uh, who has written a book about Jim. And this is the thing I wanted to get into. Oh, good. Um, the, book, the, the book he wrote about Jim is, which I have here. I'm holding it up for our radio audience Hang to look on, at. Me, what's it called, Gary? Saving the World Through Science Fiction. Yeah, you're not going to do James that, but anyway, yeah. Okay, okay, you're not going to do that is exactly what I wanted to talk about because this is a book about <clears throat> Jim's influence. He's, he's a grandmaster. He's been writing science fiction since, I think, the 40s. <coughs> Excuse me. 
the only science fiction writer, possibly the only writer in the world, whose master's thesis was serialized in the pulp science fiction magazine. Okay. Uh, the plot forms of science fiction, which was his master's thesis at Kansas in 48 or 49, appeared in a few issues of this pulp magazine. And um, since then, he founded the Center for the Study of Science Fiction. He helped uh, found – he was involved in the founding of, of the Science Fiction Research Association. He's done all kinds of wonderful things. You go to the Center for the Study of Science Fiction's website, and you can – I think – I don't know if it's on the website, but he did these wonderful uh, – filmed or videotaped interviews with everybody from John W. Campbell to Asimov to uh, people who were still alive in the 60s. But the interesting thing was the theme of the conference, which is the title of this book, which is the idea of saving the world through science fiction. Well, and even though it didn't come up for a lot of discussion there, and there were younger writers there. <laughs> as well. So you had a whole conference about something you didn't discuss. Uh, well, no, we discussed that. We discussed... Jim's idea, which goes back decades, and it's not only his idea. I've talked to a number of, <coughs> excuse me, writers of Jim's generation, including Aldous Budgers, who had this idealistic belief, belief that science fiction could actually change the way we think about the future, could help us design the future and so forth. And I came back, what was not discussed there much, or at least I was not part of the discussions, was a project going on at exactly the same time with uh, the... Um, uh, I, I keep wanting to say the X-Files, but it's the X-Prize. Yes. And their new anthology called Seat 14C or well, something well, I mean, like that. It's not really an anthology. It's a website. Well, it's a website, but there are a bunch of stories on it. They're like 22 well, I, well, stories. Well, I'm well aware of that. I was, I was actually going to say that I've just been reading it, actually. Mm -hmm. uh, I know what it is. I mean, it, it, it's a curiosity in a sense um, because it, 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 it's – I think it's a set of 26 stories that are sequentially released. The first wave of them have been released. There'll be some more coming out in the coming month, I believe. All edited and commissioned by Catherine Kramer, including some very, very interesting ones. I mean, I think there are challenges around the concept. The concept, for those of you who don't know, is that a, you are on a plane. You have taken off from Tokyo Narita Airport in 2017 and you arrive in San Francisco at San Francisco Airport at the end of what feels like a normal length, if somewhat turbulent, flight for you in San Francisco, and it's 2037, 20 years later. And the it's it's quite interesting. Uh, the perspective of the individual telling the story, the protagonist, is based on the seat number that they occupy on that aircraft. So, for example, if you like the perspective of someone in first class all the way back, you know, back to someone sitting in economy. And so, you know, I think Greg Benford is sitting in seat 1A. So he's in first class arriving at Narita and, you know. But uh, I was actually, I saw a comment about it wasn't a shared world. It was every, everybody postulating the same future and they're all set in that same world together. And the answer to that is no. I mean, the... No, the, they're inventing their own worlds, right? The, the, the Gregory Benford-centric story that Gregory Benford tells... Um, is very much his version of that. I mean, it actually is him arriving and in you know, going off to find his brother Jim, and appreciating you know all the things that Greg has done and that have now borne fruition, uh, as compared to somebody else who has got a completely different background. Uh, and some of the stories, actually, I mean, not unsurprisingly, given his writing, so I wouldn't sound surprised, are really very, very good. Uh, Nancy Cress mm -hmm. has a terrific story in there. Daniel Olson has a story in there. Uh, 
Carla batchaloupi has got a very good one. Uh, Jamara, a bunch of other people. It's a good list of writers. I mean, and Carl Schroeder. Oh, Carl Schroeder's got a great story in there, actually. But yeah, continue. Oh. Sorry. So these are good stories, and 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 the 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 project is impressive in that they've um, identified. You mentioned you mentioned Paolo Bacigalupi. They've got a Hanu Rayanami story there. There's a Kathy Ann Gunan story there. So th- whoever's organizing this, and if it's Catherine, more power to her, has figured out writers that are significant, active, influential writers today. Um, and and yet. And, I, and I'm completely in favor of giving science fiction writers work. I think it's a great idea. Uh, I think the more things – but on the other hand, we had the hieroglyph a couple of years ago doing something fairly similar, science fiction actually having some impact on public policy or on inventions. Uh, and before that, you had the Jim Gunn generation in the 50s and 60s. And for heaven's sake, going back to editorials written by – John W. Campbell and Hugo Grunsbeck, this idea that science fiction can change the world, can influence public policy, can change our minds, is an idea that won't die, even though nobody comes up with any solid evidence to support it. Yeah, and I, nor will they. I mean, you know, uh, the, the, science fiction is not going to predict the, fu- predict the future, nor is it going to die. Um, I don't know. It, it, it's Look, it, it's an int- you, you're saying that you felt that the Seat 14 stuff showed that the that the editor had a really good grasp of everybody out there but i've got to say it is still a very how would i put this politely it's a not a very diverse future in in some ways it's a kind of all-star list it's it's a very white future yeah that, that 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 that's absolutely true and after having talked uh to um Jeff Ryman about African science fiction and looking at one of the books I've got to read, which I'm really looking forward to, uh, is Nettie Okorafor's Akata, not Akata, Warrior. Akata, Warrior. Akata, War- thank you. Um, so there, 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 there's a lot more variety out there uh, than, than is implied by the anthology. I think you're correct about that. Uh, but I will say also, though, in, in any individual anthology defense up to a point, that's true of any anthology. Uh, no, no anthology will be that diverse, generally speaking. It, uh, you know, you need a, a broader picture. I mean, I like to look at this particular book in uh, the context of the wide range of interesting science fiction and short fiction books that have been released this year. But what you're talking about in terms of predicting the future is a really interesting angle to look at it. I do think this actually is an outgrowth in some ways of uh, uh, the hieroglyph stuff, though, isn't it? I think it is. It's a similar idea coming from a different group of people. And, of course, Catherine Kramer was involved in the Hieroglyph Project as well. Um, so there is – but, but, but what interested me about it is the persistence of this idea uh, of, of, of science fiction somehow saving the world in Jim Gunn's terms. A good writer, as you've mentioned several, and I've not read I've, – I've read the beginnings of several stories. I just wanted to get a flavor of it. These are very good writers who, if, if you ask a good writer, to, and you've done this as an anthologist, you've asked writers to work outside their, their comfort zone. And if you get a talented writer and say, I want you to write an, a, a novel about uh, reptile mating habits in the Cretaceous, I don't know, they'll do it. They'll, they'll come up with something. Writers can do that. So you're going to get good stories in any anthology project you come up with. The idea that these stories are going to have any impact – is something that I've always been skeptical about, and even on the X, I keep wanting to say X Files, the X Prize website, they start talking about the same things we've always talked about. They talk about Arthur Clarke thought about 
communication satellites in 1947 or 48. Absolutely, he did. No question about it. Did anybody read that who was going to later build Telstar in 1962? Nobody's established that connection. The other example, which is one of the few examples I think that is a valid example, is that apparently President Reagan saw the movie War Games and became concerned about cybersecurity because if you've got a, if you've got a teenage Matthew Broderick um, starting World War III, maybe you should do something about that. So there was a presidential directive about cybersecurity, I believe. They didn't call it cybersecurity. Uh, that came out as a result of Reagan having seen that movie. That's not a very impressive example, though. No, War but games maybe it's the wrong way of looking science. at it. Hmm? Maybe it's the wrong way of looking at it. I may be looking for a simple causal connection between a single work of fiction and a single outcome is by its very nature folly. That um, the more useful way to look at it is to see whether the rise and success of a particular kind of fiction uh, re reflects or is connected to in some way an overall awareness and sentiment and way of thinking in the community at large. There's been a lot of talk in the past week about the Harry Potter 20th anniversary and the fundamental effect that had on the way that a certain generation thinks about just social justice, about all kinds of other things. Now, you could extrapolate that to science fiction and say, if as science fiction increases its profile in the community at large, does it reflect an awareness of science, a connection to science and logic? Does it reflect a attitude about the future generally rather than specifically. And you could argue, whilst I don't think there's any way you could reasonably argue that seat 14C itself or hieroglyph or any other individual thing will make any material difference, that an overall move towards popularity for that kind of stuff is going to reflect a changed attitude to science and science fiction in, in the community at large. And you can also see that uh, say that, you know, if you look at the kind of stuff that's popular, you can see there's a sort of like a rational, anti-rational fight going on in uh, popular culture right now, right? Um, and you can see the rise of a lot of science-based fiction in films and television, which are the most popular kinds of ways of consuming story at the moment, um, battling against the anti-logical way that, say, politics, for example, is going. I think that's true, and I think that the shift, and I've not read enough in these stories to get a sense, but I think the shift, which is significant in this generation, and maybe even a shift since the hieroglyph anthology, is not promoting science ed education per se, or science per se, but simply promoting reality, promoting the idea of reason as a way of solving problems, which is a, a kind of classic Asimovian attitude. Asimov's, one of Asimov's most famous stories is reason. And if he were alive today, I think he would be arguing not for his robots and not for foundation, but for the idea of a rational planning for the future is something which is severely under challenge right now. And, uh, and and you're right. I, th I think the tone now is is not a defense of science. It's become something a little bit more frantic, perhaps, a little bit more desperate. It's a defense of reality. It's a defense of recognizing reality. Um, one of the things that, for example, is a given in almost any fiction uh, set even 20 years in the future, such as these stories are, 
is the fact that large chunks of the world are going to be archipelagos now, which used well, to be coasts. What is interesting, of course, and this is perhaps a reflection of both his background and he being one of the oldest contributors to the book, I believe, or to the, to the project, Gregory Benford basically dismisses the impact of climate change pretty quickly as being very readily having been solved and moves along. Oh, well, all right. That's the, that's classic Asimovian optimism. We will figure out technological solutions to problems. The problem is we're not providing technological educations to people to invent those solutions, and we're not providing, at least at the government level, any significant support for that sort of thing. Now, so, so, so the idea, in other words, the idea behind this and the idea behind hieroglyph and the idea behind all the, there was a, a, a I forget what it was called, but there was a, a movement in the late 60s, which was the same kind of thing, uh, science fiction as kind of consciousness changing or consciousness raising. The other side of that coin, uh, which is also mentioned in the uh, X-Files, no, not X-Files, but X-Prize website, is the dystopian stuff. The dystopian stuff is, uh, they, they're pointing out how science fiction is so important because 1984 shot to the top of the bestseller lists after the election in the United States. The Handmaid's Tale is at the top of the bestseller lists after the election and because of the miniseries. People are looking at the Hunger Games and that sort of thing. And those are, this is the main problem with the idea of science fiction of in, in influencing policy in any direct way. Um, and that is my, – my, my feeling is that people – okay, people are reading 1984 now. People are reading The Handmaid's Tale now. If you would read it when you were supposed to read it, we wouldn't have had our current president in the first place. <laughs> oh, okay. I'm not sure that really, really follows, but yeah, fair enough. Oh. <laughs> uh. I mean, so, okay, if science fiction isn't going to save the future, if science fiction can't predict the future, um, why are you reading it, Gary? It's not just because we're paying you, Locus, to review it, is this, it? This is my basic argument. It's an argument that will apply to the stories in seat 14C when I get around to reading them. It's an argument that applies to every science fiction story and novel I read. Science fiction is going to survive on how it works as fiction. I'm sorry, it's just fiction. If you want to talk about treating each other more humanely than we do, you don't need science fiction to do that. A good deal of mainstream science, mainstream fiction argues that. If you, if you want to talk about how political um, decisions can lead to disaster, the entire world, not only of historical fiction but of history, tells you about that. Uh, what can science fiction tell us that other fiction can't? Um, I think it's that we have options. I, I, I think that's really what it's about. It's not. It's a, a, no science fiction writer that I know of seriously is ever going to buy into the idea of, of predicting the future or even predicting a reasonable range of futures. Um, the good science fiction that I know is always good fiction. And one of the questions that comes up is why do we read, and this is something that's personal to me because of these Library of America volumes I've been editing, why do we read The Stars My Destination? Uh, well, there's some science fictional stuff in it, which hasn't happened yet. We're no closer to that or to Asimov's foundation, really, than, they, than, than when they wrote it. But we read The Stars by Destination for the same reason we read The Count of Monte Cristo. It's a terrific story well told. Yeah, which is, which is fair enough. 
Well, speaking of I that, yeah, right. No, I, 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 it's, it's, it's why people um, can write science fiction versions of classic text. Bob Silverberg has done this with The Secret Sharer. And uh, they're, if, if you do it really well, you've got a good story, even if it's 50 or 60 or 70 years out of date. Not that we're saying that Bob Silverberg's Silver Secret Sharer was 50 or 60 years out of date. No, but I am saying that by any modern standard – uh, the star is my destination is 50 or 60 years. Oh, started. absolutely. And, and yet still as compelling in many ways as it used to be. Absolutely. Yeah. And um, the Heinlein juveniles, my partner, uh, Dale is reading, rereading Heinlein juveniles. Now, none of it works, but they're all great reads. They're all, they're all terrific stories. None of it works science fictionally. Nobody's yeah. going to put oh, no, a rocket no. ship in the backyard and no. fight Nazis. On. No, 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 no. So, so let me segue, if, if I may, from Sweet Seat 14C with this. What great science fiction have you been reading lately, Gary? At the moment, uh, I'm reading a little bit in advance of what uh, what I'm reviewing at the moment. The, the moment I'm reading Annalie Newitz's novel, the um, new novel, Do you Autonomous. Mean Good man, yes. We, we we do have to name the books for people. We have to name it. And I, uh, but the reason I hesitated is because there's a thing that I was thinking about, and I don't know if it means anything or not, but autonomous is a title taken from an adjective. And this is a trend I'm going to argue is less than 20 years old. Using adjectives as your title. Stephen Baxter was the first one to do this consistently. Coalescent, emergent, so um, and it makes sense. In, in, in the case of Annalise's novel, it makes perfect sense. You know exactly where it's going. You know why autonomous is the keyword, and so forth and so on. It's a novel about AI and about robots, um, and it's a thriller, uh, which is interesting because it's it's got blurbs from what has to be the two of the three of a trifecta of blurbs. It has blurbs from Neil Stevenson and, and William Gibson. Ah, couldn't get Verna Vinci yet. Um, Verna Vinci doesn't sell as many copies as those guys. Well, no, 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 no. But, but you're, you're in the ballpark where people know what they're talking about. Uh, so the, I would have read the novel anyway because I like Annalise's uh, work on io9. I like her nonfiction. I, I like her. Um, but it's still the kind of thing where not very often, but Occasionally, I will stop and look at a blurb and say, "Okay, Stevenson and Gibson, you've kind of got." And, and I know one of the things when you get embedded in the field as as well as you and I are, you know who knows who else and who is whose friend and who's doing this because they like each other. And so, Gibson and Stevenson together is an impressive blurb. And uh, so, so that didn't influence me to read the book at all, but it impressed me a little bit um, because I, because I'm not very, very often impressed by blurbs. Fair enough. What else uh, have you been reading? So there's, there's a novel. Let me, uh, there's a novel which I got, which did not come to me through Locus uh, from a new publisher called the unnamed press. And it's a novel by Deli Bryce. Olokaton called After the Flare, and it's a kind of uh, post-apocalyptic South African novel. Uh, and I'm curious about that, uh, simply because it's part of this expansion of uh, 
South African, uh, or not, not South African, African fiction. This person who I know nothing about had written a previous novel called Nigerians in Space, which I looked up and turns out doesn't actually have any Nigerians in space in it, but is very much about the scientific politics of, um, of, 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 of cultural appropriation and multiculturalism. Um, there's a um, later this fall, and I've, I'm putting these off because some of these things you just save for deadline. There's a new Paolo Bacigalupi novel called The Tool of War, which I've looked at. I cannot wait to read that. It's the third of the Shipbreaker trilogy, right, or series? I, I, I believe it is. Uh, and uh, Paul Macaulay's Austral, which is kind of his novelization of re- a story. I think it's not a novelization of a story at all. I'm reading it right now. Oh, okay. I thought it was. Uh, it, it's, thought it was it's set in the same world, but it's got no connection to that story at all. In the, the same future. Of Elves of Antarctica is the story. I'm thinking, yes, it is. So. Yeah, the, the story that was in Drowned Worlds. Okay. Uh, it's got other than being this uh, set in the same future. It's got no connection to that story whatsoever. Uh, in that in that story, it you know, Elves of Antarctica posits a climate change altered future, a heated melted. Uh, occupied Antarctica and a group called the Echo Poets who, who travel around uh, sculpt, re-sculpting uh, and creating their own wildernesses, if you like. This is set sometime after that and is told from the perspective of a genetically modified woman who has been working as a prison guard in Antarctica and who gets caught up in a prison escape slash kidnapping and fleeing across the uh, the Arctic uh, landscape with her genetically unmodified cousin uh, and dealing with various kinds of hazards as she goes. There's an, an element of the adventure thriller to it, whilst also being a, a pretty serious look at how the world might restructure itself physically and politically when you get to the point where Antarctica has warmed, melted, and is now a place we're looking to live. Uh, Paul McCauley is, I think, one of the major science fiction writers of the last, what are we talking about, 30 years now. Certainly, uh, yeah. And uh, yet doesn't seem to have the impact, at least in the States, that um, certainly that Peter Hamilton or Stephen Baxter have. Well, uh, I think that's a reflection of what he writes. I mean... Much like some of his colleagues, like uh, Adam Roberts and others, he, I mean, he writes very—he writes quite substantial books. He writes very intelligent books. He writes um, somewhat complex books at times, and I don't think he pitches for—and I'm not saying that necessarily Hamilton and the others do—but I don't think he pitches for a bestseller kind of style that necessarily re- connects to a broad audience. Well, he did for a while. I mean, he was doing some white devils and sort of uh, thrillers. and. Uh, but even then, it was never Michael Crichton kind of stuff. It was always... No, not always. It, was the sa- it was the same kind of complexity. It was, this is the issue which... Well, we've talked about it here before. It's the issue which confronted Benford. It confronted Greg Bear. It gets confronted just about every serious science fiction writer who attempts to write science thrillers for a broad audience. Yeah. And Joe Haldeman could be added to that list. And my argument is that these writers are too intelligent to write the kind of narrow-minded, paranoid fiction that the market demands for that kind of thing. Uh, does that sound too intolerant? Uh, that ha- sounds a bit 
self-satisfied. I don't think I would go for too intelligent, though they're very intelligent. Uh, uh, I'm, I would perhaps say to you that uh, when you engage with scientific complexity, it quite often results in complex fiction, and that complexity is often not popular. That's a much more articulate way of what I was saying. I wasn't I would I would argue that they probably are too intelligent, but I'm not arguing that people like I don't know James Patterson are not intelligent. The fiction is too intelligent. They cannot bring themselves to shut down the narrative at the point when it's asking the most interesting questions, um, which is which is all the better for their fiction, but not necessarily uh, all the better for their bestseller status. Well, well, certainly if you're trying to write a fast-paced thriller, it's easier to say. That strange science thing over there in the corner exploded. Ah, rather than let's get into how we develop that sciency thing and explain it so you understand what the sciency thing is, and then uh, b- through under- showing you a, you a way to understand it, on- undermine the kind of fear reaction that you would have to it, so you can then understand it and manage it. Uh, understanding it is always a more complicated thing than simply fearing it. You know. Well, as long as you've uh, asked me what I'm reading and I, 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 I've started remembering it, getting closer to uh, the, the next month or so, uh, I read uh, Sam Miller's first novel, The Art of Starving, which is a YA novel. And it's a conversation, again, I had with Cat uh, Valenti, who really knows the difference between the YA market, the middle school market, the new adult market, and, and so forth. And The Art of Starving, I guess, is a YA uh, and it's going to be an interesting book. It's very uh, powerful once you get into it. My concern about this book, and I've not seen this concern online, but I expect to see it when the book is out, that it appears at the beginning of the book to suggest that eating disorders, which I gather Sam himself has experienced, can give you superpowers. Which I, I, I can just see I'm, – I'm, I'm not going to pick on librarians because the American Library Association was just in Chicago this weekend, and I learned once again, even though I wasn't here from tweets, that librarians are really smart readers. There is going to be this concern. That, that doesn't, does if, that surprise you somehow? <laughs> librarians – I'm, no, I'm not. I mean librarians are way cooler than anybody thinks they are. Of course they are. We should, mention, we should mention Kyle Cassidy's series of photographs, This is the Librarian or something, which is the same. Uh, it, it kind of explodes that stereotype. There are going to be people who read part of the novel or read descriptions of the novel yeah. and think this is a novel that encourages eating disorders, which it is completely not. Yeah. Uh, but again, it's one of those things where uh, the complexities of thinking through something, and it's not science fictional really in this case, but – Somebody who's a science fiction writer, which Sam Miller is, even writing kind of fantasy or supernatural fiction, thinks things through in a science fictional way. Yeah. And it turns out to be a very intelligent and very moving novel, but you have to understand what's going on in it before you start making your judgments about it. Of course. Uh, let me mention a collection, a couple of collections of short stories that I'm, uh, I've been reading. One of which that is, if you hear that in the background, that's my mobile phone going off for no reason. <laughs> for no is, reason, uh, you don't know. It might be the end of the world, Gary. It's, it, it, it could very well be. Anyway, yep. There are two collections. Small Beer Press is doing a very good job with short story collections these days, and the, they always have. But the two that are strike me as being important 
are Sophia Samatar's Tender, colon, stories, and Christopher Rowe's Telling the Map, colon, stories. The colon stories thing seems to be a small beer trope or something, but it's very accurate. What's important about these is, uh, to start with Christopher Rowe, his most famous story, The Voluntary State, is... Still, I reread it for this. I read it when it was in, I think, your year's best and a couple of others. It's an astonishing story. Uh, it, 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 it imagines a kind of nanotech future. So, in, in, in the state of Tennessee, in what Neil Gaiman and others have called the flyover states, the notion that the future will exist in the rural mid-south is something which almost seems radical in, 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 in modern American literature. And people have done this consistently. Terry Bisson has written about Kentucky. Um, but the uh, – and, and, of course, Andy Duncan. But The Voluntary State is a classic story, and between that story and his new novella called The Border State, yeah. that's half of his new collection. That's more than half of his new collection. Yeah. And Border State may be the longest novella he's written. I'm not sure. Um and for people who are completely puzzled by the by the voluntary state, the border state does a lot to unravel that earlier story. Yeah, okay. So my, my argument in that collection is if if, if you're familiar with Chris, Christopher Rowe's fiction, uh, which is, is, is very regional and yet very innovative and very science fictional at the same time, then this collection is at least half of stuff you don't know. Um, and the same thing is true with Sophia Samatar's collection, uh, which is called Tinder, which is kind of a pun because uh, there it, it, it sounds like a sentimental title, but the word Tinder does refer to people whose outlook, whose whose um, personality, whose approach to life has been tenderized by experience. In other words, but it also the the, the most crucial story in it. Um, deals with somebody who is literally a tender of radioactive materials, uh, which is a science fiction story. So one of the things I discovered, and you might know this because you read a lot more science fiction, short fiction than I do, is that Sophia, who, of course, made a terrific reputation on the basis of her, of her first two novels, A Stranger in Alondria and The Winged Histories, um, and who then had a lot of... Uh, Acclaim for her short stories, Selkie stories are for losers, which is another fantasy story, also can write very thoughtful and deeply thought out science fiction. And so there's some solid Sophia Samatar science fiction stories in that. I was going to say when you were talking about Christopher Rowe's book that I think what I I find most appealing about uh, Chris's stories and which I think gives them much broader appeal than sometimes they've, they've actually received yet is I think he's a really smart thinker about science and technology and how it impacts on people's lives, and that he then brings it back, that kind of depth of thinking, to the environment that he's most familiar with. I mean, he lives in Kentucky, so that kind of Midwesty kind of place... And then he backgrounds all of the explanation of the technology and talks about the impact of it, how life changes rather than about how the technology works. In in, in a way, there's a uh, there's a pattern here. Kathy Goonan's uh, nanotech series, starting with uh, sort of futurized nanotech eyes, Cincinnati, 
uh, does the same sort of thing. And there's a tradition of non-urban, high-tech science fiction probably going all the way back to Clifford Simak True. and maybe but, before that. But the difference is that, I mean, Kathy, uh, who's terrific, is a very much a mm-hmm. daughter. She's a daughter of Campbell, right? She's a hard science fiction in writer way. in a way that Chris is not. Well, but but they both present their worlds in the same way. Uh, in other words, Kathy. Now, this may be because Chris is writing short fiction. Um, the, the the nanotech quartet that, that Kathy Gunan wrote, as you go through it, becomes more hard science fiction, more traditional, astounding style science fiction. But the initial introduction of this world with bees floating from sure. high rise to high rise is completely surrealistic. Chris's fiction, starting with the voluntary state. Which I even when I read it in the years best, I thought I'm going to have to read this again right now because there's a lot of stuff going on. It it all adds up, but there's no info dump in that story at all, um, and I don't think there's one in the border state for that matter. So so to some extent, he's taking advantage of the hard SF that he's thought out, and he's taking advantage of the kind of phantasmagorial surreal imagery that this tech yields. Um, and he's putting us in the world of the characters that are experiencing this tech. Yeah. And he does it very, very well. Look, I think Chris is one of the most interesting writers um, that we have. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think that there's a really different kind of feel to it all, um, to what he's doing as opposed to what uh, your more Campbellian writer does. I can see why, for example, I can see Small Beer picking up publishing Telling the Map more readily than they'd publish a more Campbellian work of science fiction. Well, I, I think, think one of the things... Be- that- because it doesn't engage with that kind of diagrammatic explanation. Well, I think that's one of the things that Small Beer is doing, and, and, and more power to them. I think that one of their gar- – this goes back to their doing a collection of Mary Rickard stories, for example, doing a collection of Ted Chang stories. They want to bring these stories to a kind of liminal literary audience uh, that's broader than the, the, than, than the audience of, of most um, traditional science fiction. And, and, and I think you're right. I think Chris Rowe is one of the most interesting writers to, to do that sort of thing where uh, – and there have always been writers like this, where if you if you don't do the work to figure out what's going on in the world of the voluntary state, it still pretty much works as a story. Um, and I, I think there's a story of his called The Contrary Gardener, which is a much more linear story uh, about a young woman who is a skilled gardener and always manages to exceed the yield on her crops. Um, and it turns out to be a story about an attempt to suppress uh, this is this is a spoiler but it's such an abstract spoiler that nobody will care it's 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 an attempt to suppress emerging artificial intelligence uh consciousness in in this kind of network of everything from tractors to buses to um uh, to to the announcer at the Kentucky Derby uh, all of which are automated and it's just beautifully done and if you don't figure out that this works out as a kind of classic science fiction story about the liberation of AIs from slavery, Um, if you don't work that out at all, it's still a beautifully told story, and it works as a regional kind of story. Um, And uh, I think it's very impressive to do. 
Would it work as well if it weren't regionalized in Kentucky and Tennessee? Most of his stories seem to center around the Mid-South, which is uh, – it's, it's not quite the Midwest. It's a part of the United States which is really underrepresented in science fiction. Um, and I think it works on both levels, and I think Small Beer wants to call attention to – the Brooklyn literati that this guy writes really interesting stories. And if you want to read them as surrealism, he won't stop you. But if you read a couple of layers below that, he's worked all this out in science fictional terms. Sounds like in other words, mm-hmm. I, I, I think they're in the project of trying to educate the literati to understand a little bit more about science fiction. Sounds like maybe we should talk to Chris on the podcast at some time. I we should absolutely do that. Another uh, book, I'm just throwing out other titles. Uh, one book we've talked about a little bit on the podcast, but I had not read it at that point, was James Patrick Kelly's Mother Go, which is unusual in that it's first published as an audiobook. Uh, it's drawn from three stories he wrote some years ago, uh, which are all very powerful stories. And one of the things about James Patrick Kelly's fiction is that he seems to always be addressing earlier science fiction. He's a science fiction critic in the guise of a science fiction writer. And so there's a story in this which, for example, um, relates back to the cold equations as his think like a dinosaur related back to the cold equations, Um, which which, which, which has a – there's an article churning in the back of my mind as I approach retirement. I think I can write this stuff. The cold equations has got to be close to Starship Troopers – as the story that most other science fiction writers have written responses to in fictional form. Which would make it one of the most problematic stories in the history of the field. Of course it is. Which is obvious. I mean, it's not even a thing to say that, but yes, it's true. I mean, uh, which was not the same as being influenced by, you know. I mean, Dune is one of the most influential you know, pieces of fiction in the history of science fiction. Mm-hmm. And a lot is, is, has been written after it and continues to be written after it, but it's not the same kind of engagement as something like Cold Equations, where I think a lot of people put that story down when they read it the first time. And, th- and they kind of go, that's just wrong. You know? But, that, that, but that is wrong. To... I'm going to argue with that. Uh, but, but, but there is this trend which has been going on. I mean, uh, Jim Kelly is uh, obviously well acquainted with the history of science fiction. But we've talked before on the podcast about how uh, the movie The Thing, the movies of The Thing, especially the John Carpenter movie, has resulted in the Peter Watts story, a Sam Miller story. Uh, the, in other words, there are there there is kind of um, you know uh, self-referential science fiction, recursive science fiction that um, is only possible if you're dealing with either a popular movie like the John Carpenter Thing. Or a story which has been so anthologized and so much talked about for 50 years that um, that you, 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 you can address it and you can correct it and you can criticize it and so forth and so on. But the, the idea of retro of, of, of recursive fiction, I mean, clearly we talked about Kids Johnson's uh, or Victor Laval's or all the other Lovecraft redactions we've done. A story has to reach a certain level of public consciousness to make that kind of fiction possible, I think. Yes, I think that's true. Yes. Um, given the time, I mean, we've, been, we've been away for a month, Gary. We didn't mean to be away for a month, but we have been. 
And we might have, if we'd thought this through and we didn't, for for very good reason, I think, we basically we don't think this through much at all, uh, we might have taken this as an opening point. We are halfway through the year. Um, uh-huh. 2017 is progressing towards its inevitable conclusion. And whilst we've been distracted by the world at large in many, many ways, and it feels like one of the most occupied, uh, intellectually um, tiring six months that I can remember, nonetheless, a lot's been going on. And it probably would have been worth talking about what we thought were, so far, the best books or whatever of 2017. Uh, so that for the people who are sitting at home now listening to the podcast, presumably uh-huh. if they listen to it within the first, say, month of it coming out rather than in the far future, in which case they'll know that we got it right or wrong in many ways, uh, they might want to know what we think they could go out and read that stood out as being amongst the the, you know, the year's best books so far. And certainly I haven't for- foreshadowed this to you. So uh-huh. I thought that I might just mention, because it occurred to me, a few books generally of interest that I would strongly recommend. I mean, uh, Mother Go is a tricky one because it's obviously, first of all, not out yet. Second of all, yeah. it's only out from Audible in an audio format, and there are no current plans for a print version of it at all, so that will be at least next year before it comes mm-hmm. out in a print format. And even then, you'd have to ask yourself, as anybody would consuming audio fiction, how getting the voice of the author filtered through the voice of a performer changes the authorial voice and changes the writing right. of the book, particularly when you've actually read it as in text. And, I've just uh, read the text. I've not heard the audio book. Yeah. And I mean, I'm sure knowing Jim, uh, it is a thoroughly engaging book. And in many ways, it's his first real novel since, since what, Freedom Beach or something. Um, because Burn wasn't a novel, so yeah, you're going Burn back was really that. Yeah. So you're going back to, well, Freedom Beach was with, with John Kessel. So it was, mm. he had a novel after that, which the name of which escapes me right now. I'm, and I feel embarrassed about that, but, but books that have, that have stood out for me this year of interest, a few titles that I'll throw out. Obviously I keep coming back to New York 2140 as a standout book by Kim Stanley Robbins. I was going to say this, that would be the, the first thing that came to mind. Sir. Um, but I have to say that, uh, the moon and the other by John Kessel, Jim Patrick, uh, John Patrick, John, mm. pa- Jim Patrick Kelly's, uh, uh, collaborator and, and friend, uh, stands out as, as, as a highlight of the year for me. The Silent Invasion by James Bradley stands out. Theodora mm-hmm. Goss's debut, The Strange Case of the Alchemist's Daughter, stands out as being a major book. Uh, Cam Hurley's The Stars Are Legion. Um, mm-hmm. the, you know, Ian MacDonald's uh, Luna uh, Wolf Moon uh, the also. Second. Yeah, the second book uh, was, was very, very good. I am catching up on late reading, so having spent my time reading some of Nine Fox Gambit by Yoon Ha Lee. I have Raven Stratagem sitting here to read, and it's, uh, it's supposed to be outstanding. Uh, also, John Darnell's book, Universal Harvester. Which is not quite science fiction or fantasy. No, I mean, uh, Darnell himself describes it as a horror novel, and it really is is that. And, and a very, I mean, I'm not normally a horror reader, but it, it, it's a very, very, very good book, an interesting and well-written and engaging book that I would recommend very highly. Uh, Cat Sparks' Lotus Blue, which is a, a, a post-climate change kind of thriller, uh, mm-hmm. a little bit dystopian. Uh, 
whole bunch of books actually, Gary, and I know that I'm missing a lot because there there are books I'm only talking at this, at this point about books that I've actually you know read or been looking at very closely, not books that I have sitting around waiting to be read because you know that's not sort of really fair to sort of render some kind of opinion. On, I mean, I've got a stack of um, Nora Jemison books sitting by the side of my bed, even as we speak. Uh, and of course, you've been much, much more fortunate for me because than I, because you actually get galleys. So I don't have a Carter Warrior, or I would have read it. Um, mm-hmm. I have Spoonbenders by Daryl Gregory, which I read not very long ago, and think is terrific. And I think that comes out. It's either just out, or it's just out. I think it's just out. Week. Yeah, it's just, he's on his book tour now, I believe. And it, it, it's a, a excellent, you know, engaging, amusing uh, book. It really comes down to whether you prefer science fiction or fantasy. I confess, I mean, before I just quickly mention mm-hmm. an oddball title, I've not read a lot of straight fantasy in the last six months, and that's something I should probably address. And I don't by straight, I don't mean obviously uh, in gender terms. I mean a, a non-gen, a non-genre blended fantasy. But mm. the oddball title, which I have picked up, and in this case I'm probably being a little bit uh, outside my own description, uh, that doesn't fit is uh, China Mievel's latest book, October, you know, the story of the October Revolution in Russia. Mm-hmm. And that looks remarkable. So I'm really looking forward to reading that. It's not, yeah, it's, it's, it, we should point out it's not fiction. I mean, it's no. basically, by his own description, a, a kind of popular history, but it's clear that he uses his narrative skills to get at a description. It's funny, he was describing this his conversations with his publisher. He was in Chicago a few weeks ago. And uh, when he started proposing this book, the, he and the agent and the publisher all were thinking, this is going to be out, you know, in a, this book's going to be out by October of 2017. It's the 100th anniversary of the Russian Revolution. The world is going to be flooded with books about the Russian Revolution. And he said, no, pretty much we had no competition at all. Nobody else was writing about this at all. But it's it's the kind of thing where you think if somebody is skilled at writing political and social dynamics, that history is a good thing for them. So uh, I've not read the book. I've heard him talk about it. I've looked at it. And it seems terrific. But we should make sure that people understand it's not science fiction and it's not fiction. No. Um, uh, there's a Francis Bufford book I would like to read, but I haven't seen a copy of yet. Um, I will add a, a, a book, a couple of books that uh, certainly uh, are on this edge of science fiction and surreal fiction are Jeff Vandermeer's Born. Yes. And How did I miss Harry that? It's looking, I, I, I haven't read it yet, so, but yeah. It's, no, it's, 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 it's terrifically imaginative. It has a kind of biotech, biotech underpinning to it. But let's face it, if you've got a giant floating bear, uh, a lot of readers are not going to worry about the biotech. They're going to think, that's so cool. Well, it's a giant floating bear. And then there's this sort of blob-like thing, which is the title character of Born, who becomes, I'm going to argue, the most moving character that Jeff Vandermeer has ever written. Um, and kind of in the same ballpark of that, of things that may that, 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 that are science fiction if you drill down far enough, but not necessarily for most writers, most, most readers, uh, would be Karen Tidbeck's Amatka, mm-hmm. which is, again, a novel that takes place in an extremely strange other world, 
there are hints in the novel that people managed to reach this world through a portal to escape whatever was going on in our world. Yep. And it's it's clearly a kind of dystopia, but it's it's a world. And I was talking to this, I was describing this to people uh, to other writers when I was at the Campbell conference. It's a world in which object permanence depends on labels. In other words, if you have a suitcase or a typewriter, you have to keep reminding it that it's a suitcase or a typewriter or it will dissolve into a puddle of goo. And is there an explanation for this? Not really, but it's such a great narrative trick that you're just constantly on edge to think that the world is going to dissolve around you. And there are mysteries within mysteries. And it's a very short novel also. It's a very economical novel, which is one of the things that I think is uh, maybe for people like me, a reviewer, a salutary trend, is that people are packing a lot of stuff into relatively short fictions. They are. Born is not long. Born is not a long novel. Uh, Amaka uh, is not a long novel. But and, and for that matter, if you go back to China Miebel's last novel, Last Days of New Paris, which might be part of this group of. Uh, surrealism in the service of science in the service of science fiction uh, they're all really distilled and efficient fictions and I as somebody who really can no longer bring himself to read fantasies of more than 1500 pages in three volumes at all yeah. I really appreciate this kind of <laughs> efficiency now I, I guess uh, you sort of out of fairness to our readers, we, we or listeners, sorry, we should probably once again touch on the subject of our timing because we're coming towards the end of our hour, uh-huh. and it seems like we reasonable. Hopefully, we will return next week. That is our hope, but that depends on your travels to New York. Exactly. And then uh, we should have normal service for a week or two, uh, and then the weekend of the so the, probably starting the weekend of the twenty ninth of July, the last weekend of July. Uh, we will become very intermittent because I will be in Melbourne with some friends for a writer's uh, weekend. And then uh, immediately thereafter, I mean, I fly back from uh, Melbourne on the Sunday evening. On the Wednesday, I head off to Europe where I will meet with you and others as, as, as we experience um, Helsinki and work on. And we should explain to people we'll be recording more than one Cood Street podcast in Helsinki, but they won't be available for listening until after Helsinki. That's right. Basically, there's going to be a, a poorly managed break of about four weeks when you don't get any more mm-hmm. episodes, and then we will pick up for the run-through till the Christmas break, and we will either run the Helsinki podcasts during the break, that's our normal practice, or we will run them beforehand and see how we go, but it really depends. The one thing that we won't be doing, because I won't be going, is we won't be recording World Fantasy uh, podcasts, because, you know, uh, that really takes us both on the ground to be running around, matching up with, with people and getting all that. So it'll come down to it. But we will be talking to, well, we plan to talk to Annalie Newitz, and we talk to, uh-huh. plan to talk to Walter John Williams, and we're still working out who else we might rec- might talk to. I mean, we had a fairly tight uh, schedule this time because uh, really what well, Thursday, Friday, Saturday to get all the right. podcasts in. So we'll just have to see how we go. I can I can say also say that you know speaking for someone whose whose schedule is already filling up, it's going to be an interesting time. I'm looking forward to it. And I've got a reader, I, I've got a ReaderCon coming up in uh, the middle of July in a couple of weeks, and we should be able to do something from there. The guest of honor is Nidia Korafor, who I gather I'll be interviewing. 
uh, which will be a lot of fun. And the usual gaggle of, of ReaderCon people will be there, so there'll be a lot of possibilities to talk yeah. about there. Um, and th- th- there's news to report as, as well. I want to find out from John Clute about the establishment of the John Clute collection at Telluride, uh, which is underway right now. But I have a quick question because I know we're going to run a couple of minutes over, but it's and it's something for another podcast. You're going to Melbourne for a writer's conference. Yes. A writer's weekend, not a conference, a writer's weekend. A writer's weekend. Are you going as an editor or as a writer? I'm going as an editor. So you've never had any impulse to write fiction? None. At all? No. Not even in college? No. (laughs) I admire that. (laughs) I I have had uh, ample desire to to having written, but no desire to write. I... No, I, I, I like writing. I like writing nonfiction. I like writing reviews. I like writing essays and so forth and so on. I've not tried to write fiction in, oh, decades now, many decades. But I've always objected to two things. One is I always objected to the title of the first Clarion collection of short fiction edited by Robin Scott Wilson called Those Who Can which comes from the those who can write, those who, can, you know, those who can't teach, which is demeaning to teachers in the first place. Um, and the second thing I object to is, you probably heard me go off on this about uh, before, is that when you have creative writing programs, Master of Fine Arts programs, MFAs, and so forth, they have a track called Creative Nonfiction, which excludes people who write criticism or I presumably non-creative non-fiction <laughs> yes I, mean, I know my, my, I have no problem I'm convinced this is a genre that exists because of Angela's ashes becoming a bestseller and if, you, if, if you have a really bad family history you can write creative non-fiction uh, other than that creative non-fiction strikes me as being a euphemism for lies <laughs> Well, by the same argument that, that, that fiction itself is. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I often used to encounter, well, I used to have a friend who would argue that uh, editing, that uh, writing nonfiction, used to describe it as creati- creativity gone astray. Because you weren't okay, direct. And, and I thought that was just about as patronizing a thing as I'd ever heard. Uh, so you can imagine how happy that made me. But uh, no, I mean, no, no, I've never really thought about it. So, uh, And look, there's no doubt that you know, Writer's Workshop comes in invited, co- inverted commas and could be read as, you know, a weekend away with five of my, my mates. Well, that's kind of what I'm thinking. I, I hang out with writers a lot, as do you. And I, I should mention that none of the people who are my friends have this attitude at all. Uh, it's it's something which seems to be an artifact of um, possibly partly of academia, partly of uh, a, a certain kind of third-rate fanish writer attitude. In other words, uh, the, the the only writers I've heard make this argument that is that only fiction writing counts are not very good themselves. That could be so. Well, on that cheery note, I'm going to run. I'm going to drive my child into town because she's okay, going to yeah, yeah, yeah. shopping. But I will talk to you hopefully next week, and we will be doing our best to keep Cood Street in front of you as much as we can in the coming year or so, I suppose. But until next week. And meanwhile, thank you for your patience. Until next week, this is the Cood Street Podcast.